Welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. This is your co-host, Patrick Patyandi. And this is your other co-host, Leticia Wiggins. Nearly every four years since 1930, nationally formed teams fight for the coveted World Cup, a trophy that represents the greatest accomplishment any soccer, or to most of the world, football team can achieve. As the biggest single event sporting competition in the world, a FIFA World Cup win bolsters national pride and promotes international recognition, or so it is often argued. And now we're fast approaching the 2014 World Cup, hosted this year by Brazil, who will also host the 2016 Olympics. In this episode of History Talk, in addition to considering the sport itself, we'd like to consider the local, national, and international impact of not only the World Cup, but also the Olympics as a pair of international sporting events, which are so often politicized and turned out to be controversial. And today we have three experts joining us for this discussion. We have two in studio and one via phone. We'll ask our phone guests to first introduce themselves. Sure. I'm Russell Field. I'm an assistant professor in the faculty of kinesiology and recreation management at the University of Manitoba, where I teach primarily courses in the history and sociology of sport. I'm Stephen Kahn, and I'm one of the editors of Origins. I'm Mark Horger. I'm a senior lecturer in the history of American sport uh, in the kinesiology department at Ohio State. All right. Thanks for joining us. And let's get right to it. First off, some deep background. When and why did large international sports competitions become the norm that we know of today? And Mark, we'll throw this question first to you. Well, the first one in the sense that we're talking about would be the modern revival of the Olympics, which started in 1896. And the first one was in Athens, and then they began having them every four years after that, although the first few were not really all that spectacular. 1900 was in Paris, 1904 was in St. Louis. Those games were attached to World's Fairs, and the World's Fair was the more interesting and more popular and the bigger thing at the time. And in particular, the one in St. Louis was uh, there were only a handful of non-American athletes, and one of the leaders of the Olympic movement in the United States was a guy named James Sullivan who was the head of the American Amateur Athletic Union. And some of the American Olympic efforts early in the history of the Olympics involved Sullivan trying to sort of turn them into these American things. And so the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis were basically AAU national championships, that the vast majority of which weren't really all that international. And it wasn't really until maybe 1908 London or 1912 Stockholm that the Olympics in the sense that we know them, that they were internationally popular, internationally respected, successful. That's sort of when the tradition took in such a way that it became a permanent sort of model. Moving on to the economics of this all, do these sorts of events pay for themselves, historically speaking? And Russell will ask you to take this question away. Sure. Historically, pay for themselves is a, is a slippery thing to try to get a hold of because the events themselves, Mark started to unfold, if have changed so much over time. Initially, they were wrapped into other events. And especially if we're talking about the Olympic Games, or at least the IOC version of the Olympic Games, those were intensely amateur events, uh, which means athletes were self-funded, funded by their national committees. And oftentimes, the events themselves, as Mark's alluded to, weren't that spectacular. Uh, and it's not re- and oftentimes as well, used existing facilities. So the Our contemporary understanding of those events as grand global spectacles, uh, intimately tied into media, intimately tied into global multinational corporate sponsors, is not necessarily, is very much a late 20th century uh, phenomenon. Yeah, Russell, if if you had to pick a single uh, Olympic event where that shift takes place, could you point to one? Or was it more of a... The one most often pointed to is Los Angeles. 
1984 Los Angeles game. So certainly the big, the first sort of grand spectacle, uh, not unproblematic, but the first grand spectacle in the Olympic history is Berlin in 1936. But in terms of the commercialization of the games, Los Angeles is pointed to most often as a turning point, but it's important to remember, I think, two things. One is that the commercialization that, that blossomed so fully in Los Angeles in 1984 under the leadership of Peter Ubroth was the result of a, a shifting shifting process that commercialization of the games had, had always existed on some level. They just sort of blossomed in 1984. And even as we talk about the 84 Olympic Games as being the first organizing committee to talk openly about earning profit from the games, even those games took place in a stadium that was being reused, a stadium that had been used for the 1932 Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. There was a trend, and I won't be able to name every stadium that I don't think that was built this way, but there was a trend in the United States in the 20s of building large municipal stadiums for a variety of local pride reasons, among which was the possibility that it might help the city land an Olympics, which was essentially how the L.A. Coliseum was built, which was sort of built simultaneously for USC and under the assumption that L.A. would be interested in trying to gain the Olympics at some time. And so under that model, that kind of municipal-led model, do you think that helps the communities where things well, are hosted it, more it, than the kind of commercialized Russell is model? right to point out how a slippery slope that is, because in particular the, the deal with the Coliseum in L.A. is that, uh, a, at least in the United States, a very powerful political and cultural motivating factor that gets large, expensive things built is the idea that your city is not sufficiently respected relative to other cities that you view as your peers. And that usually means you're looking half a step up at your peers. And so in L.A. in the early 20s, Los Angeles believed, you know, the the big sort of boosters in Los Angeles, the guys that could get things built, were simultaneously convinced that the East Coast was insufficiently respectful of West Coast greatness and that San Francisco was insufficiently respectful of L.A. greatness. And building a stadium for USC football as public boosterism that might also land L.A. an Olympics that would cause the whole world to stare at L.A. and look at how awesome L.A. was. And at the same time that they were spending money in L.A. to do that, across town in Pasadena, they were building a more or less identical stadium for the Rose Bowl to play a football game in once a year so that people on the East Coast freezing to death on New Year's Day would look at all of the available real estate in Los Angeles. It's so warm out here we're playing football. It's so warm out here that we've got rose petals to waste (laughs) turning into parade floats. And and Russell, did this sort of kind of more local or regional competition happen on the international scene as well? Absolutely. And in some sense, the, the point that's already been made about Stadiums being built in part to attract international events, but also for other events, uh, took place in other cities. So that the London Olympics, not the most recent one, but London Olympics in 1948 took place in Wembley Stadium, which had been built in 1923 essentially as a football stadium. So there was, uh, especially in, in Europe, and the Olympics were and to a large degree remain a very Eurocentric uh, at least administratively and, and conceptually kind of event. Um, in Europe, I, the idea of building soccer stadiums was so essential to, to a city sort of civic pride and the nature of, uh, it was a, the, the, the bricks and mortar were a tangible manifestation of your city's success 
and your team's potential success, that in many respects the international sporting event was a nice add-on to a, an existing kind of facility. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm struck as well as I look back over this that, at least in the American context, but I think also if you're now looking in places like Brazil where they're embarked on two rounds of uh, Olympic and uh, World Cup construction – that that these attracting these big international events becomes an urban renewal project by a different name. That what happens here is we use the excuse of these huge international events to do a lot of other things for which we might not otherwise have been able to raise the money. I think that was true in Sochi, though, which I think a lot of people missed in the discussion of of those Olympics that just passed. And I think the the track record on that is pretty mixed. And I think you, if you got four economists in a room, you'd get five different answers about whether or not those investments <laughs> yeah. wound up paying off. And the nature of the sport. So the World Cup, it seems like, is very popular in like Latin American countries. And I wonder almost, when we speak so much about the Olympics, is the World Cup on the international scene? Is there a difference here in what countries are more likely to host or who gets a bid? Or I'm trying to think of a I would say that the biggest difference economically until relatively recently was the absence of interest in, in the World Cup in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, certainly, particularly when we begin talking about uh, television, there was a stretch of time in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, for example, when uh, uh, Olympic IOC politics had become very complex for a variety of reasons I'll imagine we'll talk about a little bit later. But one of them was is that the biggest chunk of money into the IOC pot was the American TV right. contract. Hmm. And while television became important to the World Cup uh, uh, money pile eventually as well, one of the – until 1994 at least, one of the, the big differences between the two is that the largest commercial marketplace in the world was the one part of the world that was not interested in the World Cup. Right. I, I also wonder, and I'm thinking also back to, Russell, what you said a moment ago, whether the dynamics of international politics is in part to answer for you, the, the, the question that you raised, Leticia, because Mark's quite right. Americans until very recently uh, didn't have much interest in uh, what we properly call soccer. And um, as a consequence, it never got refracted through the Cold War in the way that the Olympics did. Right. The Olympics were fun to watch precisely because it was this titanic struggle. It was a Cold War soap opera. Exactly. Uh, so you look at those East German weightlifters and, uh, and, and those Soviet swimmers and all that other kind of stuff, and that was the fun of it. Now that that's been gone for the better part of 20 years, uh, the World Cup has emerged in a different place in, in America. Although I would observe that the U.S.-Russia hockey game this year was one of the highest rated. That it, it, it's, I'm sort of struck nice. that, that some of that has come back sort of organically. American culture is, has sort of already organically begun to turn Vladimir Putin into a cartoon villain figure. And to maybe mirror even before that the Ukraine, recent events in the Ukraine. Ukraine yeah. events, right? Yeah. Um, um, and Russell, I'm wondering, we've kind of touched on this kind of Cold War topic and the international relations angle. Um, what, what were some of the kind of key f- points in the strained relationship during the Cold War, and how has it improved since, or maybe if it has improved since, do you think? Um, the Cold War became one, but not but by no means the only moment when uh, nationalism was, was, when sport became a tool for reflecting up, upon the ways in which national and political kind of uh, interests intersect, so that 
the same kind of national interests that led uh, to international sport being created in the 19th century were the same kind of impulses that led sport to be taken up uh, in the post-Second World War era. So uh, most historians point to the, uh, the re-entry of the Soviet Union into the Olympic movement in the early 1950s as, as the moment where the Cold War and sport became... Um, uh, intimately related to one another, because after the uh, Russian Revolution, the, the Soviet Union had pulled out of the Olympic movement uh, until the early 1950s when a change in policy dictates a return to, to international sport. But that there are other kinds of important nuances, so that the Cold War becomes implicated uh, throughout sport in the 1950s, 60s, and certainly through into the 1980s. Uh, we, it, for obvious reasons, we focused a lot in our discussion thus far on, on sort of American examples, but there are lots of other ones. So where I'm sitting in the Canadian case, we look back to a hockey, an ice hockey series uh, in 1972 in September, the same uh, month that there's uh, that uh, the basketball final in Munich becomes an important Cold War moment in sport for Americans uh, and the Soviet Union. But I think one of the reasons I say that I think that the reentry of the Soviet Union is only one point of departure for thinking about uh, the Cold War in sport uh, is because uh, what's less often talked about is the uh, Chinese relationship to sport in the Cold War and the fact that the Chinese, for example, uh, in the late 1950s decide for a variety of reasons, both tensions with the West and indeed tensions with the Soviet Union, to pull out of the Olympic movement. Uh, and begin sponsoring most prominently in 1963 in Indonesia alternate forms of multi-sport events, alternate Olympics uh, that become fully involved in uh, third world politics. So that one of the other kinds of great uh, tensions in the Cold War period is not just East-West first and second world war, first and second world uh, tensions in the Cold War, but also how to deal with. Uh, the rapidly decolonizing countries of the third world. So you kind of did hit on um, this idea of sports and national identity as being linked through these events. And when and why did this link between nation and sport begin? I actually think that one of the things we sort of underestimate when we're discussing the politics of this, because we're so trained to take this for granted, is the fact that that it's one of the primary exponents of nationalism, of the idea that a people are a nation that share a language and a culture and that's organic and the world should be organized into boxes with everybody's name on them is deeply political in ways that the vast majority of people, at least in the United States and Canada and the West, have a hard time stepping back from. And one of the ways, especially after World War II, that both the Olympics and FIFA have become political is that uh, FIFA and the IOC and the United Nations are the three international organizations that get to decide who are or aren't countries. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and we as, uh, as Western consumers of the Olympics on television laugh at the two hours that Bob Costas has to find a way to say something interesting about the three guys from Togo and the two guys from Trinidad and Tobago that come through. But that two hours for much of the rest of the world is overwhelmingly the most important part of the Olympics because that's a parade of who is or isn't a country. Uh, my favorite contemporary example of this is that the, I don't even know what to call it, the semi-independent English-speaking city-state of Gibraltar. I don't know what it is, actually. But it, is, it has 
it has petitioned FIFA to to compete. Right. And I think the population of Gibraltar is about thirty thousand people. Yeah, I'm going to move there so, so I can the, finally make an Olympic I'm, team. I, uh, the odds are low <laughs> that they're going to be an international the football powerhouse, but they would very much like that FIFA pretends that they're a nation. And Spain would very much like that FIFA not pretend that they're a nation. Otherwise, the Basques right. might ask and San Marino might ask and, and, and on down the line. And I think we've seen this a lot in Eastern <clears throat> Europe, right, with Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, all these kinds of countries. Well, I think, yeah, but we actually, but I think Russell is that. right that we actually, it's a little bit of our own Western blindness to not think mm-hmm. of that primarily as a third world phenomenon. Right. It's also happening in Eastern Europe. And, and I think I would see it in two parts. And, and Russell, that's a, that's a really great observation. So f- it, beginning in the 1960s and accelerating through that decade and into the 1970s, there was decolonization and the creation of these new nations out of the former European colonies. And, and then they get put on display. They get their moment in the sun during the Olympics. But then I would say, you know, in the 1990s in particular and, and continuing maybe up to the very present moment, a kind of micronationalism that has emerged in various parts of the country, uh, various parts of the world, so that the, the the country of Sudan has now been partitioned into two countries, Yugoslavia dissolved into several other countries. Uh, who knows what's going to go on in Ukraine? Whether we'll wind up with two halves of a Ukrainian country, and the way that those micronationalisms get legitimated is by recognition. Uh, and if you don't get a UN seat, maybe you get a bid to go to the Olympics. Yeah, I was gonna, just going to jump in there because I there's there's a lot there and uh and and mark and steve are right that that sport has become one of those markers of of acceptance internationally and it but it's highly contested so that there are international sporting events now for groups that feel unrepresented in international sport and that the boundaries are not clear so that um in european football uh uefa the the european soccer governing body the faroe islands are one of the teams that get to compete. Mm. Uh, but Greenland isn't. So why does one Danish colony <laughs> compete? But the other, which wants recognition, doesn't get get to compete. But what I would say, and and Steve's right about this kind of micronationalism, and, and even smaller, I would argue, than than the idea of the, of the countries of the former Yugoslavia, but that this is much, much older than this, that, um, that Yugoslavia didn't necessarily break into separate nations. What happened is that that these ethnic groups that had been agglomerated and right. uh, mm-hmm. by the West at one point in time uh, reasserted themselves. And, and so it's much older than that, and it's not just a phenomenon of other parts of the world, that when Coubertin forms the Olympics, and that's just one example, in the 1890s, he does it under uh, through a, a variety of philosophical lenses, internationalism being one of them, but it plays in, but it's never an international peace movement, which is how he frames the Olympic Games. It's always a movement uh, for nations. And the idea that international sport emerges and becomes uh, conceptualized in this way at the exact same time that a variety of nationalist movements in Europe are realizing their objectives is, is not insignificant, that sport becomes a way not in not not in uh, Sochi, but in the late 19th century, for nations that are newly formed, all these city states that are suddenly Italy, uh, uh, of sport becomes a, uh, a literally a playing field for people to act out what Italy or some other nation means now. Yeah. Uh, so this is not a, a, a contemporary phenomenon. This is this has got a long history. I wonder, though, Russell, if if you would agree with this, this is an observation that sort of interested me, that the Olympics 
also became – and I don't know about the World Cup. I suspect probably not. But the Olympics at least became a place for a while where individuals might talk back to those notions of nationalism. So I'm thinking about 1968 uh, with the medal ceremony that was controversial, the two American sprinters, uh, 72 Olympics, of course, with the PLO and what happened in Munich. And it seems to me, you know, there was a sort of desultory conversation about whether certain athletes would boycott the Sochi Olympics because of the the uh, anti-gay legislation and the homophobic discrimination. But it wasn't really serious. Nobody really thought that they were going to upset the apple cart here. And I wonder if you would agree with that, that, we've, that, that the Olympics is really no longer a platform uh, for a kind of political protest statement. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. I think a lot of people who aren't intimately involved in sport and the Olympics see the platform as being there. Uh, but I don't think that the people who are involved necessarily want to do that. I think the athletes who dedicate their lives to competing in this way are, are many of them, though by no means all, many of them are reticent to, to give up that opportunity and are inculcated in a subculture of not necessarily challenging that authority and risking those kinds of things. And 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 there are lots of boundaries around keeping sport out of politics and and this goes this goes back to the beginning of the Olympic Games but certainly in the Cold War era that we've been talking about uh the IOC president who wasn't the only American to have ever been IOC president Avery Brundage just abhorred the idea that sport and politics commingled and even though they were de- depending on how you defined politics intimately uh related yeah the, the- um, but- You know, and I I guess I I would just say from my American point of view, I I think this is also true in terms of American athletics as they also have become increasingly commercialized and increasingly just large economic enterprises. Once upon a time, uh, American professional athletes, even American college athletes would take positions on uh, controversial political issues. I'm thinking particularly of Vietnam, uh, University of Michigan football players, uh, you, you know, chartered a bus to go to an anti-Vietnam War protest in Washington, D.C. over the objection of their coach. Whereas nowadays, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, the best we we got was that uh, people, uh, you know, NBA teams wore their jerseys inside out uh, in yeah. protest of Donald Sterling. That was that. Uh, and then we, we moved on because there's there's too much money at stake here, perhaps. Just as a counterpoint, just as a counterpoint, and I kind of want to say this because I, I basically want to see if Russell thinks I'm onto something here. I can. I don't know why I'm the litmus test. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I was because I uh, just off the top of my head, I, I I agree with everything Steve said, but none of those people didn't show up to play. And I can only think of. And in 1968, the protest that started that wound up Carlos and Smith with the, with black yep. power in the air had begun as an effort by some black uh, American athletes to convince no black American athletes to participate in the games. Mm. And the only, and this is what I'm interested in knowing if Russell thinks I'm right about this, that the only major athlete I can think of that didn't appear at an Olympic games where he almost certainly would have, would have for political reasons is Lou Alcindor, who should have been on the 1968 American basketball team, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. who I believe was the only major American athlete you obviously would have expected at the games that didn't go to the games, probably because of his political 
Yeah, and, I, and then but he of course played a sport where you didn't need to go to the Olympic Games to then become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and right. be a professionally active athlete. Anyway, uh, can you think of any other examples, Russell, along those lines? There are examples, uh, and, and they're far more uh, obscure than than someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But there were protests, for example, around, uh, and there were lots of discussions around boycotting uh, the Berlin Olympics in 1936 because they were being hosted. Uh, by the Nazis and because of what was obviously going on in Nazi Germany and uh, and fears that, that Jewish German athletes wouldn't get uh, the potential to be represented on those teams. So there was an alternate Olympic Games had been organized for Barcelona for a variety of reasons that never happened, but there were athletes who refused from a variety of countries, and there were certainly two Canadian athletes I can think of, who refused to go to the Olympics that year on the Canadian team, who went instead to Barcelona. Mm. Uh, so there are examples like that. Um, the one, uh, the most shining example, uh, and I would agree with, uh, with Steve that the 60s were a period when athletes seemed more political, though, um, and were more political, and it was a more politicized time. I, I would also say that, that there's, I think we have to caution ourselves not to be too nostalgic about the 1960s, in part because some of the most prominent athlete activists, and I'm thinking of someone like Dave Megacy in the, in the NFL, uh, felt enormous repercussions about, mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. any kind of, uh, if they were to step out at all, there was great, uh, they faced a lot of repercussions. So as, as Mark says, the athletes did compete. The most successful campaign for sport and politics and human rights uh, is, I think, undoubtedly the anti-apartheid movement, where sport played an enormous mm. role in visibly uh, ostracizing South Africa. Which, which in turn, when, when South Africa hosted the World Cup, that, it made that – it amplified the importance of that event for that nation. Yeah. I, you know, I would also just toss out Muhammad Ali uh, as someone who um, – you know, in the in the prime of his career on an international stage, boxing is a, occupies maybe a, a different space here than some of the other things we're talking about. But but, but he, he did lose several years in his prime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just hard for me to imagine nowadays that uh, that you'd find an athlete at that that level mm. who would who would do that to their own career. And and right, so that while politics is, we want to keep politics out of it. As as Russell, you've already said. The politics of nationalism has is, is part of the DNA of all of this to start with. So it's a certain kind of politics that we include and other kinds of politics that we keep out. So bringing this back to the present day, do we see all these different um, political kind of aspects, protests? Uh, so does this appear like it, is Brazil doing anything similar in this instance? Certainly there have been some protests in Brazil that have used the construction around the World Cup and the Olympics as a focus. But I'm maybe Russell knows, knows more about this than maybe the two of us sitting here in the studio. I'm not so sure that those protests are as much about sport as some of the other things we've been talking about as much as those are the obvious nearby symbols of money being spent on other things that are serving as the focus of the protest. Uh, the, the one similar example I can think of is that of contemporary protests that were not particularly interpreted as protests about sport other than the, to the extent that they represented a security threat for tourists was there, were, uh, uh, there was uh, unrest in Mexico City in 1968 surrounding the, the Mexico City games that weren't really about sport as much as that was the obvious thing to focus. Right. The, the city wasn't on. ready. They, they, I mean, I think that was part of the, the reason as well for the. I, I also think that the, the Brazil 1416 mm -hmm. uh, sort of double whammy is going to raise, it's going to be a very good laboratory to test 
what we've talked about previously, and that is whether these huge economic infrastructure investments wind up having any kind of positive legacy uh, in the in the population, which you know, in Brazil, at, at any rate, um, a lot of this construction is going on in neighborhoods that are, that are desperately poor. Yeah, I'd like to try to connect two strands in, in both what Steve just said and what Mark was talking about. The, connect the idea of protest and unrest and whether or not that's about sport, which is, I think, oftentimes a, a rhetorical device to save sport from protest rather than and to cleanse sport of protest because uh, I think they're intimately rated, but also back to this idea that, that uh, Steve mentioned earlier that, I, that we didn't really get into, which was this idea that sport and sporting events and hosting as a, as, a, as a method of urban renewal. There have been protests around sport. There wasn't just unrest in Mexico City. There was a massacre of hundreds mm-hmm. of students by the Mexican government uh, or the police force and, and the government in the guise of the police force. But there have been protests around hosting events at least since Atlanta in 1996. Yeah. Sort of massive protests uh, now going on in Brazil. They're, they're very sizable. They're considerable. And they're around a variety of issues around dislocation of people to build stadiums. And there's a core, which is an NGO based in Geneva, has been tracking numbers of people displaced for the construction of sporting events. And they, they number in the hundreds of thousands in the time that the core has been tracking them. There's tangible impacts on the ground for these kinds of projects and the growth coalitions and the civic boosters who want to promote them and the resistance that's happening to them so that there's there were pro- and there are now what's interesting is that what was a first world phenomenon so there was when vancouver hosted the winter olympics four years ago there were considerable protests in vancouver leading up to the games on a variety of issues environmental economic you know, the rights of indigenous peoples but now what's interesting is that is that as the model of regeneration, of civic renewal, uh, and the investment of enormous amounts of money seems to be ringing somewhat hollow, uh, and, and the case of Athens and the bank, uh, the mm-hmm. Athens Olympics in 2004, and the, and the association of that with the, in part, but no, by no means all, but in part the failure of the, the Greek economy, is that what we see now and that civic leaders, political leaders, are now taking a stance against the idea of bidding for these events. And in consequence, events like uh, the Olympics and the FIFA World Cup are now going to countries, uh, less developed countries. Uh, so South Africa, India just hosted uh, the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Brazil, as we talked about, is getting the FIFA World Cup and the and the uh, and the Olympics in 2016, and or places much like Putin's Russia, where governments don't have the kinds of uh, democratic accountability to worry as much about protests. So there's ways now in which it's almost seen that we'll get around the kind of resistance. We'll get to Beijing's another good example. Governments willing to spend the the mammoth amounts of money. Uh, Sochi was the most uh, expensive games ever. That this idea of the debates around urban renewal and the rise of protest are, are now very much related and now impacting where games are going so that the next World Cup, two World Cups after Brazil are in Russia and Qatar, uh, places where the, that kind of protest is less likely to happen. And there are already now international protest movements growing about uh, deaths of migrant workers around stadium construction. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks to Russell for joining us by phone and to Steve and Mark for joining us in the studio today. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifel. Our executive producer is David Staley. 
Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Pacciandi and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.